0: Thank you for allowing me to speak to you today. As a lay person who has had the opportunity to preach in numerous churches and venues through the years, I always count it as a sacred privilege to be able to preach and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. So thank you for extending to me this privilege to speak to you this morning in this setting. Today, I'd like to focus our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel so-called, We, in Christian circles, use this term so often and so commonly that I believe we overlook its meaning and forget its nuances, and and this is unfortunate. The gospel is central to our faith. The gospel is at the core of our theology. The gospel is the lifeblood of our ministry. The gospel is the ultimate hope of our lives here on earth. I believe that we need to circle back every once in a while to review and understand this word to recalibrate our internal and eternal compasses, that it is good for our Christian health and the health of our churches to consider the gospel. So I'm here today to talk about the gospel, and it's my fervent hope and prayer that some of you individually might be eternally affected, that this preaching might have a result in your life, and that you as the church might be affected too, that you will be more motivated to take this unbelievable, wonderful gospel message to your community and to your world. Within the Christian faith, the concept of gospel is broadly defined. In its most general sense, gospel means good news or glad tidings. It appears throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, over 100 times, and it translates into our English versions of the Bible from the Greek noun, Evangelion. Stemming from this noun comes the verb evangelizo, to evangelize, and further from this noun and verb the word evangelistes, which denotes the evangelist, the one who declares the good news. Today, in your presence, I intend to be such an evangelist, one who will declare this good news, this gospel. Be it known, however, that, that this concept of the gospel is not that simple, and we really need to drill down and do a little more work to define better what we mean by gospel. You see, the use of gospel is nuanced in its meaning depending on whether it comes in the Old Testament, before Christ's birth, in the New Testament, before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, or in the New Testament, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In the Old Testament, Gospels almost always related to God and the actions which He has taken. These particular actions are notably saving in character, saving help, saving works, or saving deeds. They generally concern His people Israel in physical deliverance from oppressors or spiritual deliverance from the bondage and burden of sin. In both situations, the appropriate human response is praise and adoration. In a foreshadowing way, the good news deliverances of the Old Testament portend that a greater news deliverance is to be expected in the future, that the Messiah is coming. When we move into the New Testament, our focus naturally shifts to Jesus Christ, and before His death, burial, and resurrection, He is the proclaimer of the good news of the coming kingdom of God. The world into which Jesus is born is not right. Sin and suffering exist and prevail. God's will is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus proclaims the good news of that coming kingdom of God, a God who continues to be sovereign and who coincidentally has appointed Jesus Christ to be its solution. So we see in the New Testament a subtle transition whereby Jesus Christ, the proclaimer of the good news of the coming kingdom of God, becomes the proclaimed. This happens at the cross, and it is confirmed by the resurrection. After the resurrection, there is fulfillment, there is completion, there is realization of the solution to man's eternal separation from his creator. It is in Christ. It is of Christ, the good news is thereafter referred to as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not plural. It is singular. There are only, there is only one gospel of Jesus Christ. But amazingly, wonderfully, there are now two mission fields, the Jews and the Gentiles. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he predominantly walked among the Jewish people and proclaimed good news. But after his resurrection, the width and breadth of this gospel good news now extended out to all who would believe and follow him. Peter stayed in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area and proclaimed the good news of Christ. Paul and others launched out from Jerusalem into the uttermost parts of the then known world to proclaim the good news of Christ. That wonderful message has been passed on to us, person to person, year after year. Simply, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of Jesus Christ, now applies to us too. It is of this gospel that I have come here today to speak. So my starting off point this morning is the familiar passage in Romans 1, verse 16. In 57 AD, obviously after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the believers in Rome by beginning with a very bold and assured proclamation. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Today I stand before you and I am not ashamed of the gospel either. I recognize it is the power of God to change our lives as it did to me over 40 years ago in September 1977 when I began trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It is the power of God to liberate us from our sins and death. It is the power of God to reconcile sinners like us to himself. In short, the gospel is the power to save us. It is the power to effect the salvation it announces and to impart the life it promises. This gospel of Jesus Christ is undeniably good news. It has drawn us out of death into life, and at that, life eternal. This eternal life is given to us as a gift. We are born of God. We are born again. It has led us out of darkness into the light. It has changed us from being God's enemies to being God's children. We are adopted into his forever family. It is good news because all of this is given to us by grace, and we deserve none of it we must be constantly reminded how great is this good news. And I can think of no better way to do this than to frame it in its proper context, to highlight the good by showing how bad and dire is our situation apart from Christ. That is to say, if there is good news to proclaim, then there must be bad news to avoid. So what is that bad news? Paul wrote to the Romans and stated in clear, fundamental, universal, theological fact, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We have all sinned and we all continue to sin. We are ancestors of Adam and Eve who began this vile practice and we have inherited this proclivity. We are born in sin and it is part of our nature. David proclaimed in Psalm 53.3, There is none who does good, not even one. Sin separates us from God, our Creator. It makes us God's enemy. It makes us the object of His wrath. It has a price, and that price is death. As Paul wrote to the Romans at 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Apart from believing in Christ, our eternal prospects are horrific. In John chapter 3, we're told, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In John 3.36, it's written, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It is not that God's wrath will come. It is here already. The disobedient one, the sinner, the unbeliever is already in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And unless something is done to deal with this problem, this wrath will remain forever. Death, condemnation, and wrath... Our sin is not free of consequences. The result of our sin is horrific. This is horrible news. But we don't seem to talk much about this information in our culture. Certainly not the way preachers have pressed this point in times past, and certainly not as passionately and compellingly. I love history, and I've recently engaged in some pleasure reading of sermons of evangelists of our past like Jonathan Edwards, or George Whitefield, or Charles Spurgeon, or D.L. Moody, or Billy Sunday. If, If nothing else can be said of them, they don't mince words. They were very willing and able to tell their listeners about their dire condition before God. And in many instances, they were very artful and persuasive. For example, listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards from his famous 1741 sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang... By a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Or in another portion of that sermon, Jonathan Edwards warned, your wickedness makes you as it were heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Or the, the famously extracted quote of, of Edwards from that sermon, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Or consider the famous evangelist George Whitfield. He traveled from England to the colonies seven times between 1740 and 1770. And it was of him that it is said the spirit and drive of the colonists were raised up so that they would go forward and win the Revolutionary War. And our nation would become a nation of United States with a genuinely united Judeo-Christian mindset. He was known as the great orator, who attracted crowds upwards to 20,000 at one time. He had an unbelievable booming voice. And he didn't mince words either. In one recorded sermon he preached, Think, I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. Think with yourselves how racking, how unsupportable the never dying worm of a self-condemning conscience will hereafter be to you. Think how impossible it will be for you to dwell with everlasting burnings. Consider, I beseech you, consider how you will rave and curse that fatal stupidity which made you believe anything less than true faith in Jesus, productive of a life of strict piety, self-denial, and mortification, can keep you from those torments, the eternity of which I have been endeavoring to prove. That was George Whitfield. In the late 1880s and early 1900s, Retired professional baseball player Billy Sunday reached millions with a gospel message and he delivered it in a very dramatic, energetic, folksy way. I really enjoyed reviewing his sermons. In a plain, talking way, he described the horrible place sinners were in outside of Christ. In one sermon he said, The devil has got some of you so close to hell that you can smell the fumes. He's no loafer. He's been working for 6,000 years and he was never laid up with appendicitis nor tonsillitis nor the grip. Or in another sermon, Billy Sunday said, Hell must be an awful place. The fact that God went to the trouble he did to send Jesus Christ to this earth and to work out his great plan of redemption proves that it must be an awful place. I think this should give us a new vision. Or finally, consider Reverend Charles Haddon Spurgeon. England's preeminent preacher of the late 1800s. In 1862, he preached a famous sermon entitled A Sinner's End, wherein he forcefully stated, A spider's web is a strong cable when compared with the thread on which moral life depends. We have told you a thousand times till the saying has become so trite that you smile when we repeat it. Life is frail, And yet you live, O men, as though your bones were brass, and your flesh were adamant, and your lives like the years of the eternal God. As breaks the dream of the sleeper, as flies the cloud before the wind, as melts the foam from the breaker, as dies the meteor from the sky, so suddenly shall the sinner's joys pass forever from him. And who shall measure the greatness of his amazement? Remember, O sons of men, how terrible is the end of the ungodly. Friends, I believe many pastors and churches these days have been lax in emphasizing how dire is a sinner's condition apart from Christ. And that bad news is ironically about the bad news. We don't often hear hell discussed in our churches, and even at that, really do we hear hell described so ominously and imminently as did preachers in times past. And outside of the church, hell is a joke and people flippantly tell others to go there. Friends, hell is not a joke. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. This death involves an eternal separation from God in an actual place of misery and torment. Have you ever had your finger slammed in the door? The pain is excruciating, but it eventually subsides. And as you sit here, you are no longer having that pain. Just bad memories. But the torment of hell is eternal. Let me give you a definition of eternal which I was once told. A bird flies to the top of Mount Everest every billion years. At the top of this rock, which is 29,029 feet above sea level, the bird attempts to sharpen his beak. He strokes it one way and then he strokes it another and then flies off for a billion years. And then he comes back and he does the same thing, strokes his beak one way and the other and flies off for a billion years and a billion years and a billion years and a billion years. When Mount Everest is worn flat by the bird's beak, less than one second would elapse in eternity. In the finite of our lives, we cannot fathom infinity. Being in hell for one second would be horrible. But being there for eternity is indescribable. But that is what we deserve because that is what we have earned by our rebellion and sinfulness. This is horrible, horrible news. It is worse than bad news. But don't despair. We have the gospel. We have good news. From the prospect of this horrible eternity, we need help. We need a Savior. God's solution is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. Though we are rebellious and unlovely, amazingly, God still loves us. Paul wrote to the Romans at 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the famous verse, John 3.16, we're further reminded of God's loving solution for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ is our Savior, the one who saves us. He is our Redeemer, the one who buys us back. He is our Ransomer, the one who pays a price we are incapable of paying to free us. He is our Reconciler, the one who brings peace between the Creator and His wayward creation. He is our Substitute, the one who shed His blood and died in our place. God, being just and merciful and gracious, all at the same time, did the miraculous at the cross. He saved us through Christ and kept his integrity by still staying just and merciful and gracious. How could that be? If just is getting what you deserve, and if mercy is not getting what you deserve, and if grace is getting more than you deserve, then how could this be? How could it happen all at the same time? Let me give you a 21st century picture of this taken from the world in which I've worked for over 40 years. With your mind's eye, travel with me to an imaginary courtroom. The judge has just sentenced the defendant to life in prison, a just penalty for his crime. Then, in an amazing move, the judge voluntarily takes off his robe and comes down next to the defendant. Without fanfare, he gives the defendant his wallet and his car keys, and he puts his hands out to the court officer to be handcuffed and taken away to serve the defendant's life sentence. The court officer obeys and takes the cuff off of the defendant and places them on the judge and then walks the judge out of the courtroom to go to the prison to serve the life sentence. Everyone in the courtroom is aghast, and rightly so. Now the defendant has a choice. Does he run after the judge yelling out, It's really my fault. Let me do something to help serve the sentence with you. Or does he act in faith, believing that his penalty has been paid in full, that he has received mercy, and walk out of the courtroom as a free man, released from the penalty he deserved, and better yet, blessed by the judge with provision to live the rest of his life in the world? This is the unlikely yet wonderful interplay of justice, mercy, and grace, all happening at once. And this is what happened roughly 2,000 years ago. When God came down out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and went to the cross and suffered our penalty in our place, it is all made possible because God's love for us is so great. This is all of God. This is the simplicity and wonder of the gospel. God doesn't need any help to achieve our salvation. And frankly, it's an insult to God for us to think that there's anything that we can do to solve our eternal problem. It is all of God. It is a gift. In my weird courtroom example, it would be weirder yet for the defendant to leave the courtroom as a free man but spend the rest of his life going to the prison on random occasions to sit in the visitor's room at the jail to help the judge do the time. doesn't work that way. Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no no man would boast paul wrote to the romans at 623 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord don't lose sight of the fact that the gospel the good news involves a gift from a legal point of view i can tell you that a gift is special it requires three components a donative intent a transfer and a receipt. Unless all three requirements are met, there is not a completed gift. We can visualize this process by considering our culture's practice at Christmas time. If I wanted to give you a gift, I would likely go to the store and pay for the gift. I would wrap it up, put your name on it, and place it under the tree. At this point, I've displayed donative intent and I've delivered the gift. But it is not yours yet until you grab the gift, unwrap it, and claim it to be your own. At that point, it is a completed gift, but not a moment before you receive it. For many of you, this is like the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ has purchased for you on the cross. Until you receive that fully paid for gift by faith, it is not yours. You must turn to Christ in faith and believe this good news. That he died in your place and offers you the result of his work, the gift of eternal life, if you would but receive it. The Apostle John wrote about Christ and said, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel, the good news, is that though a sinner apart from Christ is hell-bound, God has solved this horrible problem through Christ. When we could not save ourselves, Christ ransomed us, and he offers this free gift of eternal life if we would merely receive it by faith. If we do, God promises us that we will be changed and he will do the work of conversion paul wrote to the corinthians and said therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed behold the new has come <clears throat> all this is from god who through christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation we are born again we are changed from death to life we are brought out of darkness into light We are no longer God's enemy, but we are adopted as his child. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Moments before we were hell-bound, and now we are heaven-bound. We are given his spirit, and we are connected in a special eternal relationship. Thank God for this conversion. Thank God for this good news. (coughs) I believe... The famous preacher George Whitfield would tell you at this point what he shared from his heart with listeners over 250 years ago. He said, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. If you are damned for lack of conversion, remember that you are not damned for lack of warning. Thousands have not had the gospel preached to them, but you have heard. If there is a deeper place in hell... God will order a gospel-despising church member to be there. You will have dreadful torments. Of him to whom so much is given, much will be required. How dreadful to have a minister after minister say, Lord God, I preached, but they would not hear. Such is the responsibility of hearing the gospel, the good news, the greatest news that has ever been told on the face of this earth. A proper response is always required. When Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly life and his so-called hour had come, he wound up having to appear before Governor Pontius Pilate on the way to the cross. At this time, when under pressure from the chief priests and elders and the Jewish crowd they influenced, Pilate capitulated and released the criminal Barabbas. He then stood before a very agitated crowd and had to deal with Christ. In this very tense spot, in the midst of this very unruly crowd, he pronounced a question that has reverberated through the centuries. He said this, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What a question. This is not a question for that Jewish crowd only. It applies to all of us. Our lives and our futures depend on what we do with Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is like no other man. Think of it. There is no other figure in all of history who is as well known as Jesus Christ and there is no other name that has been spoken as many times as Jesus. He is unique and importantly it must be known that with him there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral position that you can take with him. He made it very clear when he said, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters with Christ. You are either in the light or you are in the dark. You are either dead or alive. You are either heaven-bound or hell-bound. It is that simple. So no person should be vacillating in his or her relationship with Christ. Pilate's words echo into the 21st century. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I trust most of you, if not all of you, have heard about the famous 19th century preacher evangelist, the Elmudi. He had his roots in Massachusetts before launching into an international evangelistic ministry which allowed him to travel over one million miles and to reach more than over 100 million people with a gospel spoken and written. In the late 1860s, D.L. Moody served as president of the Chicago YMCA and he had a central role in the building of the first YMCA building in America. It was called Farwell Hall. This venue was suited for speaking to large groups, upwards to 3,000 at a time, and Moody used this building to preach on Sunday nights. On October 8, 1871, Moody preached to a full crowd at Farwell Hall, coincidentally on the the same Pilate's words, What then shall I do with Jesus which is called Christ? He closed his message by saying, "'I wish you would take this text home with you "'and turn it over in your minds during the week, "'and next Sabbath we'll come to Calvary and the Cross "'and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth.'" Following the sermon, Ira Sankey, Moody's song leader, led in a hymn, but it was interrupted by great commotion outside of the hall. The problem? The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 had just started and people were fleeing for their lives. This was Sunday night, and it took until Wednesday for the flames to stop, and everything that Moody had in Chicago was destroyed. On the great Chicago fire's 22nd anniversary in 1893, Moody spoke reflectively to a gathering and said, I have never seen that congregation since, and I never will meet those people again until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you of one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is, when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there, and to try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I have asked God many times to forgive me for telling people that night to take a week to think it over. Though I believe God calls His people to Himself at His time, And that the Holy Spirit ultimately convicts us of our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. I do take to heart D.L. Moody's experience with the great Chicago fire. When one hears the good news of Jesus Christ, that great information needs to be immediately processed. To not accept it is to reject it. I cannot force you, despite my hardest efforts, to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I cannot force you to repent and turn from your sinful ways and follow Christ for the rest of your life. I can't force you, and I won't. But I will do what Paul attempted to do to the believers at Corinth in his second letter. That is, I beseech you, I implore you, to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. To help you grapple with this gospel information, I want to take you back to September 1977, when I returned to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to begin my second year of law school. As part of my new weekly schedule, I began attending Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and in the Sunday evening new members class, the pastor, Dr. D. James Kennedy, asked all of us two questions. They revealed to me where I stood with Christ. I want to ask you those questions right now, and I want each of you to seriously answer these questions in your minds between you and God. The first question is this. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die right now, you would go to heaven? The second question is this. If you were to die right now and stood in front of God and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell Him? The fact is, we can know for sure if we are going to heaven. John 20 verse 30 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then in 1 John five eleven through 13, it's written, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. By God's grace, I know for certain that when I die, I will go to heaven. You can know too. I hope you have full assurance, but I bet there are some of you who aren't sure. I know that I wasn't when I was asked that question decades ago. So let's consider that second question. What would you tell God if He asked you why He should let you into His heaven? If you were like me, you might have unconfidently begun to list a lot of religious things that you'd done in your life. Like, I I tried to go to church, and I've prayed, and I've given money on occasion, and I've tried to be a good person, and I've tried to follow the golden rule, and I've tried to be kind to my fellow man, and, and I certainly haven't murdered anyone or committed any heinous crime or sin. But you know what? Those are all useless, futile answers that won't earn any of you heaven or eternal life or a restored relationship with God. Those things simply can't be earned. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. The good news gospel message distinguishes Christianity from all other religions and faiths. And there are two simple words that set Christianity apart from everything else. Do and done. If you believe that you have to do many things to gain and earn God's favor, then you are misguided and you are not a partaker of the great good news of the gospel. All religions other than Christianity have their rules and requirements and practices for being in good favor with their God. Things to do. But Christianity is so wonderfully different. As for the payment of sins, the purchasing of eternal life, Christ has done it all. Do you hear me? Christ has done it all and there is absolutely nothing more for us to do. Salvation is a gift of God through Christ. We don't have to pay for a gift. It's paid for already. We just have to receive it. If you had to pay for it by doing something, then it's not a gift, it's a purchase. But the Bible clearly tells us that salvation is a gift. That is good news. That is the gospel. Some of you may be trying to make this more complicated than it really is. It is simple. It is a gift. It is paid for by the shed blood of Christ. That is the only currency that God accepts. There is nothing more that you could add to it. God doesn't need your help in figuring out how to draw you back to himself. His solution is Jesus Christ. You need to quit trusting in your valueless currency, in your feeble, worthless attempts to gain God's favor. There is nothing you can do. It is all done by Christ. Do you get it? I implore you to understand this good news. I cannot present it to you any clearer thank you for allowing me to be in your presence today as an evangelist, a bringer of good news. May God bless you as you do your best to respond in the most eternally beneficial way.